Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Well, it's late afternoon on Tuesday the 22nd of December today, and we have decided to squeeze in one more episode before taking a break for the holidays. Today is going to be a mix of news and some broader reflections. We'll start inside the Australian Government first with some changes to Cabinet and another former politician being appointed to a significant ambassadorial post. Next, we'll discuss the recently released review into the laws governing Australia's intelligence community. And for our final segment, we'll begin to look forward to 2021 by offering one issue that we want to learn more about over the summer break. Okay, let's get started. We begin with the mid-December announcement of a Cabinet reshuffle. The major changes from a foreign policy perspective are that Dan Tian will take over the trade portfolio now that Simon Birmingham has become finance minister. And the outspoken Andrew Hastie, formerly a member of the Australian Defence Force, will become assistant defence minister. Prime Minister Morrison said that Tian had, quote, a keen sense of the particular interests of regional Australia in an open rules-based trading system. Part of the reason for this, perhaps, is that Tian is a former diplomat who speaks Spanish and during his time at DFAT was posted across Latin America. Tian also worked as an advisor to Mark Vale, both when he was Trade Minister and Deputy Prime Minister in the 2000s. So it is the trade portfolio that I want to focus on today, Alan. You've spoken very positively of Simon Birmingham in the past during his time as Trade Minister. So Dan Tian obviously has big shoes to fill. Why is that? Can you summarise for us what you think Burmo did so well and perhaps frame it as a friendly piece of advice for the foreign minister and the new trade minister looking ahead to 2021? Sure. Well, what I most admired about Simon Birmingham was his control of words and tone. When you were listening to him, you always had the feeling that he knew just what he wanted to say and was pitching his words with precisely the emphasis he desired, and these are really key diplomatic skills. Mm. He also he also had the confidence to speak with authority about all the matters in the portfolio, including the non-trade ones, but he could do that without, and I'm not going to make an unkind comparison here with Christopher Pine, seeming to be making a takeover bid for the whole business. In addition, he had a, an excellent mutually respectful relationship with his officials, and all these are qualities that we can hope Dan Tian will echo. But looking forward, it's been a long time. In fact, I I can't actually remember it ever having happened before since the Trade Minister has been at the forefront of what's probably the most central dimension of the department's work. So for the immediate future, the China trade dispute, or you know, albeit just one dimension of the overall China problem, is going to be at the forefront of public discussion, and therefore that's where the trade minister will be as well. So although sort of slightly unkind, but 
in the past, I think many Australians wouldn't have been able to name the <laughs> the, tra- the trade minister. I think Dan Tian's going to get more than his fair share of television attention. And so for that reason, as you noted before, it's a very good thing that he comes with a pre-existing understanding of how the department works. Mm-hmm. I guess this is also a good time to ask a perennial question of how important ministerial appointments are these days. It seems like the Prime Minister and his office are, even so more than ever, you know, the central actors on foreign policy. So how do you see the current balance between the role of the Prime Minister and ministers on foreign policy? The Prime Minister of the day has always been the key player in the foreign policy space. So I don't, don't buy the idea that this is particularly new. You can think right back to Robert Menzies and the way he dominated the policy debate with his external affairs minister, uh, Richard Casey. And I'd argue that even if you take the most extreme example you can think of, which may be Julia Gillard as prime minister, who herself said that this area wasn't her passion, and Mm. a foreign minister in Kevin Rudd, who knew the portfolio and, you know, all the details of Mm. it backwards, Um, even then it was still Gillard's foreign policy that prevailed. In my experience, anyway, it's all, the relationship and the outcomes for Australia always work best when you've got a prime minister who has a clear sense of his or her strategic priorities and limits them to the things that matter most rather than trying to sort of embroil themselves in every dimension of foreign policy as well, one person you can think of is Malcolm Fraser, who used to do that. Mm, mm. Before we go on, can I just make another comment about the reshuffle? There's one interesting dimension on the defence side, which is that we now have both a defence minister and an assistant defence minister who have been senior officers in the ADF. The minister in the reserves, and uh, Andrew Hastie, of course, in the SAS. But it's just I'm not sort of making any particular comment uh, about it except that this is an unusual thing. So all the top positions in the Defence Department and the ADF, of course, are held by people who, who have been in the services. Mm. It makes me think of the debate that's happening right now in the United States with Joe Biden's nominee for Defence Secretary, who's also Mm. a former general. And I think there were many who were hoping it would be sort of a pure civilian who had never been in the military. One of the reasons being that it's important for civilians to assert, you know, control over the military, because ultimately that's the way government is structured. And I guess, you know, obviously the dynamics are are different here with that hierarchy form that we've discussed, especially with Rebecca Skinner on on the interview with her some time ago. But yeah, it it is an interesting feature and it makes you wonder, is there more political power or trust given to these people because they have that military background? Or is it because they're seen as actually being more effective at controlling the military and enabling it to execute the government's will of the day? So there's yeah. a positive spin or a less positive spin, depending on how you want to frame it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next item is the appointment of another politician, this time former Tasmanian Premier Will Hodgman. In this, and he's been, or well, he will become Australia's next High Commissioner to Singapore. 
Back in episode 33, we discussed the appointment of former New South Wales Premier Barry O'Farrell to the post of High Commissioner to India, and he's since taken up the job. At the time, Alan, you noted how unprecedented it was for almost all of Australia's key ambassadorial posts to be in the hands of political appointees. And you wondered at the extent to which we were seeing a division of spoils normally associated with the American diplomatic tradition. So I guess this is taking things even further? No doubt about it. My first diplomatic posting was to what's now Myanmar and was then Burma under the military dictatorship of General Ne Win. That regime had an ideological approach called the Burmese way to socialism, which was a fruitless attempt to unite both Marxism and Buddhism. This was never likely to end well, but it was manifestly made worse by the decision that only military officers could be trusted to bring this national transformation about. So all the socialised parts of the economy, the you know electricity generation, for example, were under the control of brigadiers and colonels. And they may have been perfectly good at what they did as military officers, but they knew nothing about running a business. And the result was a disaster, which is still felt, I think, through Myanmar. I was reflecting on on this while noting the Australian government's enthusiasm for the appointment of coalition politicians, and particularly, and it's odd when you think about it, state politicians rather than feds who might have had more experience to head embassies in the Australian Foreign Service. So by my count, we've had former premiers of Western Australia, two from New South Wales, and now Tasmania, sent overseas by the current government. And Dan Flitton from the Lowy Interpreter has done some useful research on the full list of recent appointees, I think 11 since 2016. I don't know Will Hodgman, and he may be a perfectly nice and competent man, but I notice that in the press release announcing his appointment, the foreign minister didn't even try to articulate the reasons why the former head of the Tasmanian state government would be just the right person to appoint as head of mission to one of our core partners in the Indo-Pacific at a truly critical time. Mm. I genuinely think the government believes that unlike the commander first division in the army or the chief medical officer, these diplomatic jobs don't require any specialist skills or experience beyond a you know, capacity to host a nice drinks party or to be able to promote Australia. But the relationship with Singapore is really one of the most serious and complex we have with a Southeast Asian partner. It's literally at the core of the Indo-Pacific. Now, there's also a second consequential problem with this, which is that for every political appointee, an experienced deputy, almost always more senior than the person usually occupying that position, has to be deflected away from another Australian post to hold the hands of the incumbent. Mm. Thinking back to our conversations about Barry O'Farrell, I remember at the time thinking about this sort of perennial question of how important is it to have a political person who has a good relationship with Australia's political leadership and therefore when they speak clearly as speaking for the leader versus a, a competent diplomat who has all the skills of diplomacy. And for me, I think back then there was 
an academic debate there where you could kind of see arguments on both sides. And that was, I can't remember when episode 33 was, it was some time ago now. And, and a lot has changed in my life since then, because I have had much more time to witness, uh, personally experience my wife, Rebecca, who many of our listeners will know is currently Australia's ambassador to Lebanon and see you know, how she does her job and see, witness firsthand how there really are a multitude of specialized skills to diplomacy and to her job generally. And let me try to sort of bundle them into four categories. You know, first, you've got the management responsibility, you know, traditional management skills, managing Australian staff and locally engaged staff. And any manager in any workplace, of course, understands that these can be very tricky. Second, you've got the need for direct diplomatic skills, you know, talking to and critically building relationships with a very wide array of political and, and military and business and civil society and other diplomatic actors in the country to which you are accredited. Third, you need the strategic brain then to synthesize all the information you're getting in and translate this into clear reporting to Canberra about how Australia's interests are being affected and what ought to be done. And in doing so, you're also coordinating a range of different Australian government agencies in the process. And then four, you've got crisis management, which of course, you know, we experienced very much firsthand following the Beirut blast. And you know, I really felt immensely proud of Rebecca doing her job so well during this crisis. But I think a point that might be missed is that part of the reason the Australian embassy's response went pretty smoothly, you know, all things considered, of course, was that Rebecca and her team had done the years of, of painstaking work, both within the embassy, but also to build those relationships on the ground that enabled her to see and do what was necessary when the crisis came. So for example, you know, she could WhatsApp, uh, you know, the most senior people inside the Lebanese system after midnight, the night of the blast, and despite everything else going on in the blast's aftermath, they're still going to take her call. And the team, building a good culture, was able then to operate seamlessly, even though many had been injured, half had lost their homes, you know, work seamlessly during this time of crisis to get things done. So, yeah, this is a skill set that, that she's acquired over her career as an Australian diplomat on multiple other postings, many in difficult operational environments. So my point here is just that it is a really difficult job. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to I want to say, Darren, that I'm not at all opposed to political appointments under any condition. As you were noting before, there are circumstances and times and people when it's entirely proper and useful to send in a person with a particular set of skills, a particular relationship with the PM and so on. I'm I'm not opposed to that at all, but simply to the assumption that they can be slotted into any place anywhere in the world at any time convenient. Mm, mm. Well, let's move on. Our third item is the Richardson Review, which has now been released. It is named for the review's chair, friend of the podcast, Dennis Richardson, and the formal title is The Comprehensive Review of the Legal Framework of the National Intelligence Community which in the government's own words is the most substantial review into the legislation governing Australia's intelligence community since the Hope Royal Commissions in the 1970s and 80s. The full declassified report is a hefty four volumes and over 1,300 pages in length. 
It cost over $18 million to produce using a full-time secretariat of over 20 people working for about 18 months. The second paragraph of the whole document acknowledges that very few readers will have the need or the inclination to read the whole thing. Even the executive summary itself is 25 pages, and Alan, I confess, I have not even read that yet. So, Alan, for for most of us who come to a report like this with very little knowledge of how Australia's intelligence community operates, and you know, we're probably not going to to read more than the executive summary. So, can I ask you to introduce us to this review first? What is its significance? Yeah, well, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the Richardson review because. Well, you know, frankly, no one else is. <laughs> and and I think that's sort of surprising and disappointing. The media usually have a constant fascination for anything that has intelligence or spying. But the release of this report really didn't last beyond one media cycle. And I haven't even seen much follow-up from the academic or think tank worlds. Now, you know, to be honest, that might have something to do with the, as you point out, it's really long, 1,300 pages, and you'd have to say that the title, a Comprehensive Review of the Legal <laughs> the National Intelligence Community, isn't the snappiest thing around. But, gee, it's a serious report. And the executive summary, which is really all you need to, to read, is very easily digestible. There's been a huge expansion in the numbers of people in the Australian intelligence community and the resources flowing to it since 2001. We've talked about that with some of our guests on the Mm. podcast. We've also talked about the way it's an increasingly influential part of the Australian government and in one way or another affects all the sort of issues that we talk about here. So, When you get 1,300 unclassified pages on the Australian intelligence community released, you have to acknowledge that this is a remarkable and welcome event and the government's to be unreservedly congratulated, I think, for doing that rather than locking it all down. And so that's one of the reasons why I hope the academics and others think about it and take it seriously and use it and that it informs the public debate. Mm, the, well, the government's own description that I quoted above references the Hope Royal Commission. So has there really been nothing since then? Well, there have been a number of further reports into the Australian intelligence community, One, most recently the one conducted by Michael Lestrange and Stephen Merchant a couple of years ago, but those were mostly focused on the performance of the intelligence agencies. Were they doing their job in the way we wanted them to? But the Richardson Review is concerned with legislation, so it takes a deeper look at the underlying principles supporting the operation of intelligence agencies in a in a democracy. Listeners have, have heard me talk before of my admiration for Justice Robert Hope, whose Royal Commission reports in the 70s and 80s established both the structure of the Australian intelligence agencies and, most importantly, the principles which underlie them. I think I had, uh, as my recommendation one week, Mm. Peter Edwards' really excellent biography of Hope, which has just been published. So this is, as the Attorney-General said, the first time really since Hope that the underlying principles 
have been reviewed in that way rather than the sort of operations that sit on top of them. And what are some of the highlights for you? Well, it reaffirms the principles laid down by HOPE, including that agencies must operate in accordance with the law, with propriety, which is different from legality, and political impartiality in a manner that respects human rights and fundamental freedoms and must be accountable for their conduct. Now, I have to declare a long personal friendship with Dennis Richardson, but the list of positions he's occupied in government and the experience he's accumulated as a result is genuinely unparalleled. He's been Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister, Deputy Secretary in the Immigration Department, Director General of ASIO, Ambassador in Washington, Secretary of DFAT and Secretary of Defence. So the interesting thing about this report is that there is no bureaucratic trick that Dennis isn't wise to. (laughs) And that makes the report particularly acerbic in parts. The agencies clearly didn't get all they wanted. To to quote him at one point, the term administrative burden tends to be thrown around too loosely by NIC, that is National Intelligence Community Agencies. Or at another point, he says, too often during the review, proposals to clarify or streamline legislation amounted to no more than a bid to extend powers or functions. Governments should be sceptical of calls for legislative clarity very often such claims do not withstand even modest inquiry. So this sort of be very reassuring to everyone. Also, I may be wrong, but I can't recall any official government report before describing an existing piece of legislation as a dog's breakfast, which this one does, or urging the government not to kick a particular can down the road. So it's enjoyable to read. Mm. So what happens now? I mean, Are there difficult decisions ahead for lawmakers or is the review more about ushering in incremental changes given a changing environment? The changes that are coming will sort of manifest themselves in the preparation of the various pieces of legislation which are now now required and particularly the legislation governing electronic surveillance. You can get a measure of the scale of that by the fact that the review estimates that it will take two to three years simply to draft the legislation, then to have it considered by Parliament, and then a further two years to implement it, and that it will cost more than $100 million over five years to do that. So that one aspect of the review alone is more than incremental change. As it points out, the task for the government is to resolve and I'm quoting it from it, the inherent tension in a liberal democracy between protecting and promoting the rights of the individual and broader collective interests, in particular national security and public safety. So I reckon the Richardson Review is going to be a real help in uh, enabling Australia to do that both effectively and responsibly. Yeah, that's quite reassuring, Alan. Yeah, I think all the debates that, that we had and that were had around the world in the aftermath of 9-11, all those questions still apply, but there are two particular aggravating circumstances that make them even more difficult now. And the first is the rise of a clearly articulated alternative model in, in China. And 
if you think about electronic surveillance, you know, the way the Chinese do electronic surveillance of their own people is obviously very different to what we would aspire to in this country. But there are around the world, different governments and different publics will see different costs and benefits to doing it different ways. And so part of the articulation of our model is showing that there can be a, a way in which you can regulate and achieve security objectives while maintaining freedoms. And the second challenge, of course, is the rise of, of social media and, and the internet more broadly. And we've discussed in the past, and I'm sure we will discuss again in the future, some of the particular challenges to liberalism and to democracy that they pose. But of course, in, in regulating the internet or in regulating the, you know, how people conduct themselves on the internet, that of course brings the state in more and brings you closer to that alternative model. And so that balance is even more trickier than it was in the aftermath of 9-11. It was very difficult then. So look, the, the kinds yeah. of money you're talking about and the time, it's a lot, but it, it, I guess it's reassuring that, yes, if you are going to solve this as a liberal democracy, you're going to have to throw a lot of resources in it. You're going to have to write 1,300-page reports, which most people won't yeah. read, but there will be hopefully enough of us <laughs> who do read them and, and who do take all these issues into consideration in trying to craft a response because it's not just about us getting it right, it's about us showing the world get it right as well anyway let's zoom out and before we wrap up our 2020 year of the podcast rather than looking back at the year we just had or even really prognosticating about 2020, oh, let's not let's not <laughs> exactly rather than doing that let's try something a little bit different and, and quickly just answer the following question what what are we each personally looking to learn more about over the summer break if we can get some downtime amid COVID lockdowns and, and all sorts of different challenges that might be ahead um, and why you know what, what, what are you looking to learn about Alan? Yeah well I'm trying to finish a new edition of my book Fear of Abandonment by adding a chapter covering the years from 2016 to the end of 2020 so I'm looking to learn as best I can what the hell just happened. <laughs> In particular, I want to work out whether we still have agency in the emerging international order or whether I'm right in suspecting that Australia's capacity to act in the world is now more circumscribed than it has been for half a century, whether you know the bands around us are tightening. It's a question that has huge implications, but I find myself, Darren, coming closer to your IR <laughs> position about agency than I feel comfortable doing. I just need to sort it out by the end of summer. Mm, mm. I do wonder on this point whether our agency will increase again. I think we, we've discussed this in a recent yeah, episode we that we in some ways need our friendly superpower, in this case the United States, to give us that space to move, which Donald Trump denied us in many ways but perhaps a Biden administration might open up that space for us a little bit more. Anyway, Alan, I look forward to discussing the, the answers that you find in the new year. What about you? For me, despite the fact that I spend so much of my professional life thinking about it, the answer is still China. You know, that the topic of China is complex. I'm sure a phrase that both of us have said on this podcast before, it, it's almost a glib statement now. So many words have been written here in Australia in the past few months about the troubled Australia-China relationship. But I think still not enough attention is being paid to China itself and specifically to understanding the incentives of China's political leadership and ultimately then what Beijing's intentions are. Just in the past week and in the past 24 hours, there has been some truly remarkable reporting about 
coal shortages in China. You know, dozens of Chinese cities are restricting electricity usage. They're turning off streetlights. They're, they're stopping elevators. In some cases, you know, forcing workers to climb 20 flights of stairs, according to a report I read just last night in the Financial Times. And that same article reported that some factories are closing until the end of the year also to save power. And this is really surprising to me because part of the way that I've always thought about economic power and economic coercion is that the state wielding the coercive power by implementing some kind of economic sanction, which is effectively what China is doing to Australia, even if they're informal in nature, that those states will always be reluctant to impose sanctions that put too much economic cost on themselves, where those costs on themselves are very high. Because if you cause yourself too much economic pain, that can generate a political backlash at home that is larger than whatever benefit you're trying to achieve through sanctioning in the first place. So here, in other words, if if all of the benefit that Beijing is getting from punishing Australia, both through demonstrating strength to the Chinese people and or via deterring other countries around the world who are thinking about doing things not in China's interests, all that benefit could get extinguished if your population gets so angry because the lights are not on and the heating is not on and it's cold and dark outside. Now, there are plenty of reasons or hypotheses I can think of for what might be going on. One, you know, the economic loss from barring Australian coal is, is small. Two, the loss is large, but it doesn't translate into political costs, either because the Chinese people are still very supportive of what they're doing against Australia and will put up with the pain, or because the pain is sufficiently dispersed around the country and doesn't cross some threshold, especially given China's repressive system and, and censorship. Three, maybe the economic pain is large and the resulting political pain is also large, but punishing Australia is still seen as so important because Beijing feels that there is some national security or maybe ideological security issue at stake. So like lots of possibilities, but I don't know the answer. And so for me, trying to learn you know, more, still more, a little bit more about what's happening inside China is, is, is going to remain a key focus into the new year. And we're about to get to recommendations, but can I, on this topic, recommend a relatively new podcast called Peakingology, which is hosted by Jude Blanchett of CSIS in Washington, D.C. It is the kind of detailed analysis of China itself that I think is you know, too often been missing from the Australian debate. You know, so much you see an acknowledgement in Australian commentary that you know things in China are bad or that China's behaving badly and has ideological motivations or is growing more powerful. But these take up no more than one or two sentences in a given piece and the focus then shifts to Australia. And I really want to see much more you know, in the Australian debate about what is going on inside China itself and what is motivating China's leaders. Couldn't agree with you more, Darren. Couldn't agree. <laughs> All right, Alan. Well, let's wrap up our final segment for the year on reading, listening, and watching. Let's do a little bit of a best of for 2020. What got you through the year? Look, you know, every time we've come on, we've talked about things that I've listened to and watched, and there have been lots of good things over the course of the year. But through all the pressures, I've also needed something to take me right away from the pandemic and the, and the problems of the world. I wanted to enter a different world, which wasn't this one, 
but one which was reassuringly bounded and predictable. So I've been rereading the 21 Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. For those who don't know them, they were published between 1971 and 2004, I think, and have been described as the greatest series of historical novels ever written and compared to the achievements of writers like Jane Austen. Captain Jack Aubrey is a Royal Naval officer during the Napoleonic Wars, and his close friend, Dr. Stephen Maturin, is a naval surgeon and part-time British intelligence officer. Now, I, I wouldn't know a flying jib from a mizzen stay sail, but you don't need to be into naval warfare to revel in the quality of O'Brien's writing and the subtlety of his characterization. So these these novels I'm grateful to because they've taken me a long way away from 2020. What about you? <laughs> well, I've got one each of, for reading, listening and watching in my best of. We'll start with watching TV because it's forefront in my mind. Last week, we saw the, the finale of season two of The Mandalorian, which is on Disney+, Plus, which is the latest Star Wars series. It was terrific and thoroughly worth a huge audience payoff for, for watching the season, which was very good anyway. And, you know, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I enjoyed the movies. They have a, you know, a place in my childhood. And I think, you know, this season and particularly the, the last episode did a very good job of bringing back all those emotions and, and, and sort of you're really returning me to my childhood while still moving the story forward. So really recommend, you know, the best series since the Game of Thrones easily for me. In terms of a book reading, I'm actually reading Dune, which I'd never read before, funnily enough. Maybe the most famous science fiction book ever written, or one of them anyway. But the reason I picked it up is because it's also a forthcoming movie by one of my favourite directors, Denis Villeneuve, and it's coming out, I think, towards the end of next year. And people love the book because of its politics. But I think or I read recently a comment from the author Bruno Machais, which resonated with me about the book. And he said that part of the, the genius of the book is that the author, Frank Herbert, sets the story, which is on the planet of Arrakis, which is Dune. The, you know, that's what they refers to as Dune, and makes that planet itself into a protagonist. Yes, the humans have their political squabbles and they fight away, but the environment and the ecology of their surroundings are themselves major players and they're even decisive. And in a year of, of bushfires and pandemics, I think that idea is very resonant that humans do their thing, but there is there are larger forces at play that shape and constrain whatever humans can do. And finally, for listening, I'm going to re-recommend a, a podcast called The Realignment as someone who is trying to understand the meaning of Trump. It is by two sort of relatively young conservatives in the United States who are trying to work out what Trump means and what the future of conservatism is in that country. But I think there are echoes around the world, including into Australia. So the realignment, I have found probably the most enjoyable and informative podcast consistently over the course of the year. Okay. Well, that is all. Alan. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, Darren. <laughs> and we look forward to talking with you all again in the new year. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. Thanks again to AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing and for Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Hope you all have a relaxing break and looking forward to talking to you again in the new year. Chat to you then. <laughs>